trusted by millions since 2011, Blockchain.com has crossed over 1 trillion in crypto transactions and facilitates around one third of all Bitcoin network transactions. Securely store, trade and buy Bitcoin, Ethereum and other top cryptocurrencies on the Blockchain.com wallet and exchange. Go to Blockchain.com to get started today. Hey, Nick. Hey, Rob. Uh, so the big news is that the cryptocurrency markets are hitting an all-time high right about now. Literally this minute. Yeah, it's $2.8 trillion, right? That is a boatload of money. <laughs> uh, it's wild. Uh, how are you feeling? Yeah, I, um, I'm not trying to take it for granted. There's a tremendous amount of work that has happened um, over the past decade by entrepreneurs all over the world that are building a new asset class that's designed for the age of the internet. And so we couldn't be in a more appropriate forum to really dig in to maybe what the next 10 years are gonna look like as the internet continues to pr proliferate in every aspect of our lives. But I think especially in how we coordinate our time, efforts, energy, and capital. And so it's not inobvious to me that we were always going to need a financial system for the internet. And the good news is it's arrived. So what's really interesting about blockchain is that you guys have been around since basically this has been an industry. You just celebrated your 10th anniversary the other day. Yeah, we uh, blockchain.com turned 10 years old on October 15th, and it was an absolute special day to celebrate with our team and the community members we have all over the world. Um, it's been a long journey, but in that time, we've had almost 80 million people sign up for blockchain.com wallets in nearly every country around the world. 80 million, you said? 80 million, yeah. And those users have conducted over a trillion dollars worth of on-chain transactions with each other. And still to this day, blockchain.com users are um, contributing over one-third of worldwide network traffic on-chain on the Bitcoin network. So we're really proud of all these things, but we still see the work we're doing is foundational to build the tools that are going to make it possible for people to passport into the future of financial services. Now, you were early enough, actually, to snag the domain blockchain.com. How much do you think that's worth today? Um, it's worth quite a bit. We actually did that transaction in Bitcoin and so it may turn out to be the most or one of the most expensive domains in the history of the world, but um, I don't mind that at all. We used to pay for our rent in Bitcoin. We paid all of our early salaries in Bitcoin. And if you were to do all the math, it would look a little silly today. But one of the most important things you can do, uh, from my perspective, to spread the word about how powerful crypto is as, as a concept is to gift it, is to share it, is to pay your uh, service providers in it and have that aha moment where they realize that they can exchange wealth with anybody else in the world, regardless of the circumstances of their birth, instantly and most times much more cheaply than they would if they were using a traditional financial service provider. Um, how many people in the audience own cryptocurrency? Raise your hand. Lots and lots of people. How many people own self-hosted, self-custodied crypto? You know, be your own bank, possibly even from blockchain. Fewer. Fewer. What's the pitch for people to, to okay. pay their own bank? Um, so it's important to understand that there are different tools you can use to hold custody over your crypto or to hold basically an account balance where somebody else is holding your crypto. One of the main points, especially in the early days, was to disintermediate finance and put users firmly back in control of their money. When you park your money in a bank, they use that to lend it out and they earn interest on it. They also hold all of that money and make money off of you. You are sort of the product. 
in the digital currency land and especially some of the early pioneering projects like Bitcoin, the idea was to sort of flip that all on its head and make all of the people in the world the endpoints, the custodians of money, to decentralize access and custody. So you can certainly choose to use centralized services or exchanges, and especially in the early days of cryptocurrency, that was really risky. These service providers would sometimes get hacked and all of the money would disappear. Now, I think a lot of improvements have been made in custodial offerings, but it all comes down to your tolerance and your risk. And I highly recommend probably having multiple different uh, tools you use, sometimes storing things in a non-custodial wallet, and then maybe using a staking service or a custodial offering, if that makes sense to you as well. But um, the blockchain.com wallet is by far the world's most widely used non-custodial wallet. We also have custodial services for those that want them though. So you can basically choose your security and custody uh, journey with the blockchain.com experience. Now we chatted, I think it might have been a month ago, and you told me that blockchain had made $1.5 billion in revenue for the year to date. Um, where does that stand now? <laughs> and, uh, and also maybe give us a little bit of uh, insight into how blockchain makes money. Yeah, so uh, blockchain. These, these wallets are free to download. For, yeah, so anyone in the world can download a blockchain.com wallet. You can find it in the App Store on iOS, Android, or sign up online too via the web. Um, so we're always sort of known for our wallets, and we really have two sides of our crypto financial house. We've got the retail side, which helps people basically start their crypto journey. So if you're a crypto curious individual, you can sign up for a wallet and very quickly buy, send, receive, secure, or trade your first crypto. And that's a great place to begin. We also have an entire institutional side of the house though. Um, we have a large lending operation. We have the blockchain.com venture fund. We have uh, proprietary trading, over-the-counter trading for high net worth individuals. We have an asset management product for institutions. And we even have a custody service for protocol projects. So if anybody out there is building um, any of these types of protocols or tools, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, just listening to the last panel, you hear these amazing young entrepreneurs that are dreaming up fantastic ideas. Um, We'd love to work with you as well and help you on your journeys. So you basically do a little bit of everything. You flooded the zone. You're hitting all these different business lines. Um, what are the institutional investors, the big money investors, interested in? Yeah, so one of the reasons um, from my perspective that you're seeing an all-time high across the total market cap of this emergent asset class, there are really three broad themes. Um, obviously, there's been an enormous amount of discussion about the phenomena of non-fungible tokens and the creator economy, the zeitgeist of all of the people that build the things that we love watching, the creators of music and movies. Uh, they're finding new ways to have ownership over their art, and I think I would really not discount how significant this is. There are now hundreds or thousands of artists and musicians, composers uh, that are deeply investing their time and talents um, in creating digital collectibles. Do you That's own any NFTs deal. yourself? I, I have a ask. couple NFTs. I'm not one to brag about them, though. I did it out of curiosity. I'm also not really an art collector, so it's not usually my jam. Although when I was a kid, I collected seashells, some coins, and baseball cards. And so I really do think some of the especially algorithmic design artwork is super cool. Um, so anyway, we can get into that in a little bit. But big theme around um, the cultural zeitgeist driving you know, the NFT phase, especially young adults, young artists. Um, you also have the macroeconomic conditions. It's not a secret that there are negative interest rates across many of the markets in the world. Where do people park their wealth in order to not lose their purchasing power? Literally today, for all the young entrepreneurs in the audience, if you did what you were told to do by your parents and your teachers, you got a good job, you got a bank account finally with all the right paperwork and it took forever, and you put a little bit of money away into your savings account, you are actually losing purchasing power every single day. 
So what can you do about that? Well, investing in some cryptocurrencies may be a good thing to explore. There are positive yields in a lot of different stable coins, which means you don't actually have to have exposure to volatile crypto assets to actually gain some interest. We can go into some of the market dynamics there, but it's something explore worth exploring. Nick, there is a lot of volatility in the crypto markets. I yep. mean, we're hitting an all-time high right now, but what comes up often goes down. Yep. Um, so what is the right mix for people? You know, your everyday person who's like, they want to diversify a little bit, maybe they're interested in getting into crypto, um, but they don't want to lose their life savings. Yeah, this actually gets uh, neatly fits into your question about what do institutions want? And what do institutions want? And what do first-time crypto purchasers want that maybe don't want that volatility? What they want is risk management. They want proper governance over how their, man their money is managed and their wealth is managed. There are now many different service providers that are offering sophisticated investment um, access to cryptocurrencies where there is risk management applied. So basically you don't get as much of the upside, but you also won't deal with as much of the downside if there's a market correction. And so um, generally, you know, the rule of portfolio management and risk management applies to crypto, just like it does apply to the world of regular traditional investing. Um, but I would definitely argue it's super important that you vet the service providers, make sure they've had a long-term track record of operating with integrity, make sure they have faces to their products. Um, there's a lot of things to consider uh, when you're facing off against you know, any service provider over the internet, but do your homework. Give us, give us a number though. What's like a sensible, responsible <laughs> share of your net worth to put into crypto? Okay, uh, I'm probably the worst person in the world to ask you're this question say 100%, too, because right? um, I'm uh, pretty much all in on crypto. Okay. Um, but Honestly, uh, I'm not an investment advisor. You need to understand your own risk tolerance with anything, but don't just do it because your friend is doing it. This is important. This isn't some FOMO thing. You need to understand why crypto is relevant to this day and age. Here is my thesis, and maybe one you can draw some ideas from. It's my view that over the next decade, the internet will be the largest contributor globally to GDP. And this internet economy is going to need the ability for people to exchange wealth digitally across borders to teleport the way we exchange precious information. That will oftentimes represent real world value. And so if you wanna be able to do that, you're gonna need a digital fabric that's wrapped itself around the world that makes that possible. That is exactly what cryptocurrencies are for. There are different types of cryptocurrencies that are some that are designing themselves to be a little more stable. There are some that are designed to be very volatile on purpose. And there's some that are very funny and they capture people's imagination because of their funny names or their actual economic compositions. So the point is do some research. There's a reason why some of the assets though are very valuable and have been around for a long time. And that's because they have large numbers of developers and community members and companies that are building tools to make those assets more useful. So things like Bitcoin, things like Ethereum, even more exploratory projects like Solana and others that are up and coming um, have large groups of communities that are basically putting their support behind these projects. I think that's one of the things I consider when I look at whether or not I'm going to allocate into a specific crypto. Whether there's a, a vibrant community that is actively developing tools and new sorts of projects on a particular exactly. uh, blockchain. Yep. Um, interesting. Uh, so we've talked a lot, you've painted this bold, uh, bright vision of the future and how it's going to be very crypto oriented, uh, but let's talk counterpoints. What are the challenges? What are the threats facing crypto? What could make this not pan out in the way that you foresee? Well, um, I, I do think there are a lot of challenges, uh, obviously, that we'll face. Um, one of them is going to be consumer confusion. I often hear from my friends like, uh, well, what about this coin? Um, or have you heard about this new project? Is it viable? And right now, there's so many new projects forming, and it's very difficult for first-time uh, community members to ascertain whether or not these things have 
strong governance. How are the uh, tokens allocated to the founding team? Is there anything really backing this? Is the technology innovative? What's the problem it's trying to solve? So there's definitely some dynamics um, there that I think are challenging for consumers. On the technology side, we have some big challenges. The user interfaces are still clunky. And I'll admit that I think we have a much better job to do ourselves. And I would seriously welcome feedback from anyone in the audience. You can email it to me at nicholas at blockchain.com. Let us know what you think we can do a better job with. But we need better interfaces across the market. We also need better ramps. Um, once you're in digital currency land, it's really easy to move money around, but actually getting into it is still sort of a challenge. There are long queues, you need to link up your bank account, you need a KYC and AML. Some of these things are very important, but they still create a lot of friction to gain access, and I think speeding some of those things up will make it uh, possible for more people, especially in emergent markets where the traditional financial services haven't even been able to actually penetrate effectively. We still have a lot of challenges moving people into a digital fabric in the first place. So those are all obvious ones. We can also to talk about the regulatory environment that is you know, more, uh, more focused on this uh, than ever before. Earlier this year- let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, earlier this year, if you weren't paying attention, uh, in Washington DC literally shut down for a weekend because of changes that were made to an infrastructure bill um, and there were small provisions made uh, about cryptocurrency. And overnight, the Congress men um, around the country were pummeled by phone calls by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans that were saying, hey, we own this asset and we want you to be more considerate in the policies you're making about it. And so one of the interesting things though is that there are now hundreds of millions of people all over the world that own this asset class, potentially more than any other asset class in the history of all assets. And so policymakers are gonna have to come up the learning curve quickly to what people in the real world are seeking and desiring what to do with their wealth. And uh, without a doubt, we have a huge amount of work to do to still educate our policymakers to understand the risks and really the benefits of including more people in the financial economy of the internet. And this is a big deal. If you like the idea that anyone in the world should be able to participate in the economy from an equal starting point, provided they have access to the internet and probably a smartphone, those are real barriers to entry for some people. Cryptocurrencies offer a gateway to bring billions of people into the economic influence of the internet. This should be important, and this should be a strategic national interest imperative for countries around the world. Now, but they still need to figure out how to appropriately handle it. Now, governments and central banks are worried. They're nervous about this. They see the potential in the future for a slippage of their monetary authority, their sovereignty. Um, China has banned crypto for the upteenth time. Uh, and if you speak to somebody like Ray Dalio, the billionaire hedge fund investor, he'd say that you know, if Bitcoin or other cryptos get really successful, uh, the government is going to find a way to outlaw it and uh, will crack down and, and, and smother it. Uh, what is your response to that? Yeah, so um, last week, a group of financial statesmen from some of the largest traditional financial service providers in the world gathered in Saudi Arabia to talk about what was going on in the markets. You had the head of Goldman Sachs, the head of BlackRock, the head of uh, Bridgewater, and you had Ray Dalio. At the end, they were all posed a question, which is what would you rather hold in your portfolios today? Dollars, euros, gold, or Bitcoin? The only person that said Bitcoin was Ray Dalio. So he does actually see it as an asset class worth uh, diversifying at least some of his portfolio in. The others, I think, are still coming to terms with what to do with this. All of their customers are asking for it, though. And today, those large traditional financial service providers do not have products in place yet for their own clients, which is pretty wild. Now, 
my arguments for they're how... They're coming around, though. I mean, uh, they're working Morgan on Morgan and the rest, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon has been very critical of Bitcoin, but now they're offering it to their clients and customers. Yeah, so um, the large traditional financial service providers are changing their perspective on this because they're getting questions from their clients. And the community of crypto advocates around the world and regular um, and even millennial and also, um, I would say, even my generation and my parents' generation are asking their wealth managers for access to, to digital financial products. This is changing the conversation in these large traditional financial service providers. I happen to notice the shirt you're wearing. Yes, uh, thank you. George Washington doesn't look too, uh, too comfortable on that side That's over there. That's okay. George the... Washington's going to be just <laughs> fine. So one of the arguments against cryptocurrencies is that maybe they, um, you know, you said we're uh, degrading the state's control over their sovereignty of, and their control of money. I'm not sure that argument is actually that valid, and here's why. There's a proliferation now of something called stable coins. These are one-to-one -one pegged tokens to U.S. dollars, to euros, or to pounds. So governments actually already have all the monetary policy they need need, but they also need to probably help usher in regulatory frameworks for these types of stable assets. Uh, we have a huge report on this ourselves at blockchain.com forward slash research. You can learn about stable coins, um, but policymakers are actually wrapping their heads around how useful these things are because they enable for a more liquid economy. If it's easier for people to exchange dollars over the internet, that's good for everybody in America. It's good for the global economy as well. So there are different arguments being all sort of, I would say, uh, battle-tested uh, <laughs> intellectually in Washington, D.C., um, but somewhere in the middle, policy will be created, and it's a priority for the Biden administration. The Biden administration and uh, the Treasury Department and a bunch of top financial regulators, they just put out a report uh, urging Congress to regulate the stablecoin industry, to regulate the issuers of these as banks, to slap very big constraints on their operations. Um, where do you come down uh, on that position? Um, I'm not sure I'm the perfect person to opine on that specifically. I actually like that the Biden administration sent this to Congress. They're basically saying, tell the people, tell your representatives, and tell your congressmen what you want. Help us figure out how to do this. And it's important that we participate in that dialogue. If you haven't picked up the phone, we still live in a democracy, call your congressmen and tell them where you stand on these things. It is important to help our policymakers really understand how the technology that we use every day is shaping the world. Most of them still don't really understand how telephony works. The internet is an alien to them. Getting into crypto is even more sophisticated, so we have work to do to upskill and educate, um, but it does require constant you know, education from even everybody in this room. Um, I've got to ask you this, just because COP, uh, the COP event is going on right now in Glasgow and climate change is such a big theme at this event even, um, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have an environmental impact. Um, a lot of people use it to criticize, you know, proof of work, the mining mechanism that uh, that these cryptos, that Bitcoin and others use. Uh, how damaging is this to the environment, and how concerned should people be that we're hastening our demise? Yeah. So the argument that Rob is talking about, you've probably maybe even seen headlines about it, where the entire Bitcoin network consumes an enormous amount of energy to basically secure the economic history of all the transactions that's ever happened. About as much as Ukraine from the research that I've so, um, I think it's a, it's a valid argument. And by the way, um, it does use a lot of energy. This is also why you have innovative other cryptocurrencies that are testing different consensus mechanisms for maintaining the integrity of those ledger systems. 
So famously this summer, Ethereum has switched from a proof of work to a proof of stake system. That's all ongoing. And I think you'll see different um, market solutions and we'll see what happens. Um, to the argument though that uh, crypto burns a lot of electricity, it is also actually speeding up um, the adoption of investment into alternatives and renewable energies. A lot of the world's largest mining facilities that are these large warehouses of computer systems that consume energy need to be in places where energy is very affordable. And if you've got a giant power system in the sky and you can capture that energy affordably and mine it, you can actually invest at scale large plants to basically uh, grow more energy. And so it's a nuanced argument and I would say it's not one way or another. Um, on, a, on a personal level, I'm deeply concerned about climate change myself. And um, I think there's going to be ways though using blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies to actually price the energy consumption of the world's economy. And then we can offset that in a really transparent way. We don't really understand today the like the, literally the impacts of all the externalities of all the transactions that happen. If you build a Canary Wharf or a Wall Street, literally the amount of uh, construction and the damage that has caused is extraordinary. The strip mining to put all those things together, building buildings that are completely unnecessary to secure trust. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that was necessary in the past. We do have a moment now to start to think about how we shape this future in a more responsible way, though, and I see the market helping us do that. This is an incredibly important uh, topic. We've got just a few minutes left, and I want to get to this little game uh, to, to play with you, which is uh, overappreciated or underappreciated. Um, I'm going to toss something out there. You're going to tell me what you think. Oh, okay. NFTs, um, over or under? It's frothy right now. Um, I think there could be, I was going to give you a nuanced answer. It, uh, <laughs> frothy it right now. Um, I think it's going to take a little while for the user interfaces um, to get uh, really great. But imagine, you know, having, uh, being a fan of, um, you know, Manchester United and seeing Ronaldo score a goal and then minting that moment as an NFT and giving it away to one fan at the end of the game and you having that as a collectible for the rest of your life. I think that would be an incredible thing to own. And I see that vision. I just think we've got a long way to go to get there. So maybe short-term frothy, long-term underappreciated still. Okay, next up, Shiba Inu coin. Yeah, um, so uh, there are a lot of different meme coins today. It's worth maybe explaining these. They're literally um, currencies sort of formed around a concept or a joke. Um, and uh, I think this one would probably be one that uh, I wouldn't necessarily throw my life savings into. <laughs> How many Shiba Inu coin holders are there in the audience? Raise your hand. There are some, but not, not <laughs> They're probably many. not telling because it's gone up so much. Uh, and the whales, they're not going to let you know <laughs> if, they, uh, if they have billions locked up there. Um, the Federal Reserve. Um, look, I still hold some dollars. Uh, I find them useful when I'm paying for things in cash in the U.S. Um, I wouldn't discount, you know, the, uh, the integrity of the United States' economy. It has been, you know, working hard over the last century. Um, I wouldn't discount it at all. But I do see it getting digitized. And that's where I'm excited about the use of stable coins, which is just programmable dollars. And so in that way, long-term bullish on that. Okay. And by the way, those stable coins settle and clear on public ledger technologies like Algorand, like Solana, like Ethereum. So if you want to own some of the transactional network capability, it's worth owning some of the crypto that underlies it too. El Salvador legalizing uh, Bitcoin as legal tender. Yes, uh, so if you missed it, a country in the world this year literally legalized crypto and Bitcoin specifically as legal tender um, for all debts and settlement. This is a very big deal and I think they're pioneering in this way. I expect to see more countries hold crypto on their treasury just like some big companies do like Tesla and many more. So uh, more to come. 
Okay, excellent. And finally, leave us with a prediction for what the future holds. Um, uh, price predictions, of course, welcome. Anything <laughs> you can quantify, maybe put a number on, that would be most appreciated. Yeah, um, I think by 2030, um, probably 3 billion people will be using cryptocurrencies every single day in their lives. Three but I have a more surprising statistic. I think by the end of this year, half of the world's billionaires will be billionaires because of crypto. And they're going to use that money to build things. They're going to invest in projects. They're going to fund new initiatives. They're going to uh, build influence. And they're going to spread the gospel. And that's not going to change. So uh, I'm excited for the future. And thank you for this interview. Yeah, thank you, Nick. This was All right. great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody.